Hey everybody, my name is Sarah Kreger. I'm an emergency physician and intensivist at UCLA. Let's discuss hemorrhagic shock and massive transfusion. So I remember learning about this topic in residency and being like, fantastic, this is an easy one. Because you have a patient, patient's bleeding, blood's coming out of the patient. So what do you do? You put some blood back into the patient, you stop the bleeding, you call it a day. Wonderful. Unfortunately, like so many things, it turns out that the reality is a little bit more complicated than that. That's the bad news. The good news is that hemorrhagic shock is one of those conditions that I actually love treating because it falls into the category that I think resuscitation medicine is built for. Those high risk, but rescuable. Because these patients can be incredibly sick. But the wonderful thing about taking care of them is that if you do your job right, often they'll walk out of the hospital and not like uh, end up in traked and pegged in a sniff for the next five years, but actually can go back to their life. So that is the goal with these patients. Do our job right so they can bleed out their entire blood volume, maybe even a couple times over, but yet at the end of the day, walk back out of the hospital. It was just a bad dream for them. Now, our piece in this, the piece that happens in the recess room is just the beginning right? These patients go through often very prolonged hospital course that it starts in the recess room, but then goes through OR, IR, maybe GI, ends in the ICU. But our piece, this early initial piece is critically important and I think has a disproportionate effect on ultimately how these patients do. Why? Because hemorrhagic shock is one of those things that's a vicious cycle. And anytime you have vicious cycle pathophysiology, what that means to you is that what happens early on, whether it's tipping over or not tipping over that first domino to put the patient in the vicious cycle in the first place, or slowing or even halting that vicious cycle early so that you don't get that vicious cycle compounded on vicious cycle physiology, means that early what we do is important. Now, we're already comfortable with the idea that there are vicious cycles in hemorrhagic shock. We all know this thing we call the, quote, lethal triad, right? Hypothermia, coagulopathy, and acidosis. The idea being that those three things are caused by bleeding and cause bleeding. But I actually think that we need to become a little bit more sophisticated and go beyond simply the lethal triad in terms of how we think about hemorrhagic shock. I actually now have started thinking about four different domains that I need to both understand and treat in order to successfully manage my hemorrhagic shock patient. One, hematologic. Two, metabolic. Three, hemodynamic. And four, iatrogenic. Because there's a lot of things that happen to these patients that one way or another are iatrogenic. Now let's go through the detailed pathophysiology of hemorrhagic shock, because it's actually really important we understand this pathophysiology so that we can manage it in real time. So we start with some kind of massive hemorrhage. Now, the patients I'm talking about are not the patients who are like, maybe bleeding a little bit. These patients, like, they mean it. They're seriously bleeding a lot. So when you start seriously bleeding massively, two things happen. One, you're losing your oxygen carrying capacity, right? You need the hemoglobin to carry the oxygen to the tissues. And two, you're becoming hypovolemic. Those two things in combination start causing shock physiology. But there's another unfortunate side effect of massive hemorrhage, which is coagulopathy. 
Now, partially this is just because in addition to losing all that lovely oxygen carrying capacity, you're also losing things like platelets and clotting factors. But it turns out that probably massive hemorrhage itself, in a lot of complicated ways we don't fully understand, can cause coagulopathy itself. Design flaw if you ask me, but there we have it. But there's other things happening that can also exacerbate this ongoing coagulopathy. So one of the things that often happens to patients in shock is that they develop an acidosis. Now, when patients develop an acidosis, that can itself exacerbate coagulopathy. Blood doesn't clot as well when it's acidemic. There's another thing, though, that we like to do to patients that makes it worse as well, which is we like to give them crystalloids. We really shouldn't do that. We're diluting all those nice clotting factors, and if we're giving normal saline, we're really not helping now because that contributes to the acidosis. So that'll contribute to the coagulopathy. Then we also like to give crystalloids as if that weren't bad enough. We like to give them cold because why not? Now we're making the patient hypothermic. To add insult to injury, often we have these patients completely undressed in a cold room and we just make them cold in all kinds of other ways, which makes them more hypothermic. Unfortunately, hypothermia makes coagulopathy worse. Now, one of the things that is also happening when patients go into shock, any kind of shock, is that shock is a highly inflammatory state. Doesn't matter why you're in shock, shock causes a lot of systemic inflammation. And unfortunately, one of the things that can happen when you get sufficient amounts of systemic inflammation is it can promote vasoplegia. Unfortunately, acidosis itself also promotes vasoplegia. Vasoplegia, in combination with hypovolemia, is very bad, very problematic. Because the way that your body compensates for large volume loss, whether it's blood loss or fluid loss, is by clamping down, by vasoconstricting, right? So patients who both have lost large amounts of volume and are actively having vasoplegia can get extremely, extremely unstable. Basically, vasoplegia magnifies the effect of the hypovolemia. Now, usually right about now is the point that we're like, okay, this patient is clearly sick. We should probably be starting massive transfusion, which is 100% the right thing to do. But this is where the iatrogenesis of things really starts to come in. Because when you start massive transfusion, most often you don't have a blood warmer there right away. So we are giving patients cold blood. Hopefully you don't keep doing that, but often to begin with cold blood, which promotes hyperthermia, which of course promotes more coagulopathy. But there's another thing that we're doing when we're starting massive transfusion, which is the following. We're giving patients a bunch of citrate. Because in order to prevent blood from clotting while it's sitting there in bags waiting to get transfused, we use citrate to prevent it from clotting, which is great. We need that. But there's a downside because when we give the patient this big citrate load as we're massively transfusing, citrate chelates calcium. And so we can very easily make our patients hypocalcemic. Now, this is a lecture about hemorrhagic shock, not about electrolytes. Why do we care about this? We care very much in hemorrhagic shock. Why? It's because hypocalcemia has two extremely problematic side effects. The first is, unfortunately, hypocalcemia can exacerbate coagulopathy. Turns out your blood needs calcium to clot properly. But the other thing that happens is hypocalcemia can cause vasoplegia. 
You know, there's a reason that calcium channel blockers cause hypotension, right? We use them to manage hypertension because blocking calcium, or in this case, not having enough calcium, causes your vessels to not be able to vasoconstrict as well, so promotes vasoplegia. Now, it's usually around this time that things are getting really out of hand. This patient's clearly sick. They look awful, and we're also like, oh, they're probably going to have to go to OR, maybe IR, who knows? We start thinking about intubating them, which is fine and often very appropriate. Except when we intubate them, what are we about to do? We're about to give them drugs. We're about to give them paralytics. We're about to give them induction medication, sedation medication. And this is going to exacerbate the vasoplegia for two reasons. One, some of these drugs have a direct effect on the vasculature and they vasodilate you. But more importantly, when these patients come in and they're compensated for their massive hemorrhage, how are they compensating? Well, one, they're tachycardic. But two, most importantly, they're clamped down. They're vasoconstricted. Their sympathetic tone is going like mad. They have massive catecholamines that are helping keep up that blood pressure. And the minute we give them all these induction meds and sedate them, we are pulling their endogenous catecholamines right out from under them. And so they are going to get profoundly now vasoplegic. That usually happens right around now. If their shock is left unchecked, eventually this patient's going to start developing some end organ dysfunction. Now, end organ dysfunction is caused firstly by the hemorrhagic shock, but then, as I said, the combination of hypovolemia and vasoplegia can be particularly problematic in terms of perfusion. One of the organs that's going to start getting kind of unhappy with this situation is the liver, right? Liver is getting a little upset that it's not getting perfused. Now, this normally wouldn't be that big of a problem, because, you know, hopefully later we restore perfusion, liver gets happy again, LFTs maybe bump, but they come down all good. Except when the liver's not getting perfused, like any other organ, it's like, I'm not doing my job if you're not giving me perfusion. So you start having a little hepatic dysfunction. And that's a problem. Why? Because citrate is cleared by the liver. And so now you're simultaneously giving your patient this big citrate load, and as they're going into shock, their ability to clear it is decreasing. You're also going to start having renal dysfunction. And as the renal dysfunction gets worse, your urine output is going to drop. Now, when we see a hemorrhagic shocky patient with a falling urine output, of course, we're going to be like, yep, we should probably massively transfuse them more. This is not a good sign. Now, if this cycle goes on for too long, eventually this patient is going to start getting hypervolemic. This is especially true if they're having renal dysfunction and you're putting all this blood into them, but they're not making any urine and nothing's coming out. If this hypervolemia is left unchecked, eventually they're going to start developing tissue edema and intraabdominal hypertension. Now that, of course, is going to further exacerbate this end organ dysfunction, because now not only are all of your organs pissed off because they're not getting perfusion, they're also getting edematous, and they don't really love that either. Now, once you get to this phase where you're starting to really see the full-blown effects of lots and lots of massive transfusion, hypervolemia, and tissue edemia, this is when you start getting to a point of serious badness that I like to call a terminal event. What do I mean by that? Well, these, what I call terminal events are when you get into your situation with the massively bleeding patient that you're in a rock and a hard place, meaning no matter what you do, it's the wrong answer.
Your three sort of rock hard place situations in the massively bleeding patient are one, trolley, two, taco, and three, abdominal compartment syndrome. And what all three of these have in common is that if you haven't stopped your patient's bleeding yet, and they're still requiring massive transfusion, you're now in a situation where you give them blood because you're bleeding to death, but the more blood you give them, the worse something else gets. Whether it's your heart, your lungs, or just that severely swollen abdominal pressures. If your patient gets to this point, that they're in one of these situations, you know they're going to die if you don't do something soon to fix the cause of the bleeding because you have to stop transfusing them soon because you're just making everything worse. So this is the vicious cycle of massive bleeding and massive transfusion. This is what that vicious cycle pathophysiology looks like. Now, it's notable about this vicious cycle that now once you've seen it, you understand the pathophysiology, this concept of the golden hour suddenly makes sense. We have this idea of the golden hour. We talk about it in trauma. But I think what it really means is catching these patients before they get so far along the vicious cycle that it becomes difficult to bring them back. Before they get so far along that you now have vicious cycle compounding vicious cycle. That is the idea of the golden hour. Let's bring it all back together and talk about putting the pathophysiology in context in how we approach hemorrhagic shock. I like to think about five steps to approaching hemorrhagic shock. One, initiating massive transfusion. Two, restoring the patient's blood volume. Three, correct their metabolic derangements. Four, support their hemodynamics. And five, stay focused on the big picture. Let's start with number one initiate massive transfusion. The most important thing you got to do here is pull that trigger. Pull the trigger to say, bring me my massive transfusion blood bank, please. Now, this gets a little tricky. Why? Well, it turns out that speed really matters when you're doing this. Speed is important. When you start this, matters enormously. Now, as we said, part of that's this vicious cycle thing, right? Early is better. A lot of our data on this came from what ended up being a planned sub-analysis of the proper trial. So this was those 680 patients that they studied in the proper trial. And in addition to looking at the one-to-one-to-one versus one-to-one-to-two ratios, they also did a sub-analysis where they looked at time to initiate transfusion. So in this trial, the median time from patient arrival to massive transfusion activation was nine minutes, and then the median time from activation to blood delivery was eight minutes. The important thing, though, was this. Once they controlled for all kinds of things, for injury severity, how much resuscitation they got, and what treatment they were in the original trial, what they found was that increased time to blood delivery every one minute was associated with increased 24 hour and 30 day mortality with an odds ratio of increased mortality of 1.05 for every minute delay. Now, an odds ratio of 1.05 is not that impressive, but if that's for every minute, things add up pretty quickly. And so, you know, do I take away from this trial the completely dramatic conclusion every minute counts? I mean, kind of, but really it's just that Early is important, whether you count it in one minute or three minutes or five minutes, early is important. 
So, okay, early is important. Why don't we just activate massive transfusion the minute we possibly suspect somebody might need it? Well, there's a reason we don't do that. It's because blood is a limited resource. And not only is blood a limited resource, our blood bank personnel can only do one thing at a time, right? They're also a limited resource. So solving this problem by just activating massive transfusion on everybody, not the right solution. So it seems like this should be a good time for decision rules to the rescue, right? Unfortunately, it hasn't really panned out that way. I sort of put decision rules um, into two categories. In decision rule category A, I call this category of decision rule the positive grandmother sign. What I mean by that is these decision rules say things like if you have a patient who has a high lactate, a low hemoglobin, a positive past, and an open bit pelvic fracture, they probably need massive transfusion. I probably can figure that out all by myself without a decision rule. As in, if my grandmother can walk in the room and be like, honey, I think that patient is really bleeding a lot, we probably don't need a decision rule for that. So that's one type. Decision rule type B. This one I like to call the your guess is as good as mine. And most of the other decision rules fall into this category. One of my favorite studies on decision rules in massive transfusion was actually this one. So this is a study that compared different decision rules to each other, but importantly also compared clinical gestalt. Because can we just like look at the patient and be like, yeah, I think probably bleeding, is that good enough? Well, it was a prospective observational trial of almost a thousand patients. And in addition to calculating the common scores, ABC score and so forth at the time, for massive transfusion prediction, they also asked trauma surgeons 10 minutes after patient arrival, do you think this patient is likely to need massive transfusion? And here is what they found. They looked at test characteristics in terms of area under the receiver operating curve. And what they found was that the TASH score did great. Everything else, eh, not as great. Basically, clinical gestalt was not really any different than the ABC score or the McLaughlin score, but the TASH score did great. So why have you never heard of the TASH score before? Well, probably because it looks something like this. And if every minute counts and I need to do this calculation, gather all that data, remember the score, add up the numbers, I'm not sure that's saving me time. Not to mention the fact, I don't know what your trauma bay is often like, but if it's anything like my trauma bay, doing this score in the middle of a major trauma seems wildly unrealistic to me. So maybe not so much. What people have become excited about more recently is the rabbit score. I don't know if you actually call it the rapid score, but that's what I'm going to call it because, you know, rapid score. Okay. So the rapid score is two or more of the following gives you a positive rapid score, penetrating injury, positive fast, pelvic flexure, and a shock index of greater than one. And what they found seemed quite promising. Basically, even though the sensitivity and specificity weren't perfect, the area under the rock curve was actually significantly better than most other scores. If you remember, the ABC score, for example, ROC curve was like, oh, you know, 0.64, but this was 0.89. Seems pretty good, right? Well, unfortunately, there's some breaking news. This was a study that just came out just now in 2023. And this one uh, looked at some Canadian level one trauma centers and did a reassessment of this rapid score. 
They did a retrospective review of 500-some trauma patients, comparing the rabbit score, the ABC score, and then just straight-up shock index for predicting massive transfusion. What they found was quite interesting. Um, the shock index actually performed the best, which I thought was a little bit weird because the shock index is part of the rabbit score, and neither the ABC nor the rabbit score actually performed that well. You know, in the previous trial, the ROC for the rabbit had been 8.89, which is pretty good, but 0.67, not really as good. And so big picture, if you take this data and then look at it in the context of the previous data we talked about comparing these scores, you know, the ABC score in that study was about the same, 0.64, not very good. Clinical Gestalt, 0.63, not any better, but not any worse. And then the McLaughlin score was the other one and not so great. So basically, we're at a point where like, pretty much everything has an AUC somewhere in the 0.6s. So I don't know, your guess is as good as mine, is what I'm saying about these scores. Meaning that I don't think the decision rules are going to come to our rescue here. Maybe there's going to be a magic decision rule we'll come up with that'll be better. But so far, we don't have that magic one yet. Instead, what I actually think we need to be doing is like so many things in medicine, when the evidence is complex, unclear, or maybe always just going to be insufficient, is an organized clinical problem-solving approach. Because just because we don't have a score that'll feel good about like, oh, the score is 7.25, therefore we do X, doesn't mean the alternative is like, hopefully I'm feeling smart today. We need to take an organized clinical problem-solving approach. So for me, my organized clinical problem-solving approach to the question of, is my patient likely to need massive transfusion, is actually quite simple. I simply ask myself, one, how sick is my patient? And two, do I think there's likely an active site of bleeding? In terms of the question, how sick is my patient? This is a hard one. Um, this is another one where I think we're hoping there's going to be some magic number that'll just be like, ah, the trauma patient is six score is three. No, there is no single magic number. It's like all kinds of shock. There's not one magic number that tells you the answer. Instead, I find it helpful to use a mental model of shock that allows me to think through this problem of how sick is my trauma patient. And this is the mental model that I like to use for shock, not just hemorrhagic shock, all shock. This is the idea. Your patient is in a very, very fast moving river and he is swimming for his life. Your job is to help your patient out of the river. Now, swimming, 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 but getting tired. And you all know that feeling, whether you're swimming, running, biking, where you can't breathe. First, you're tachycardic. Then you get diaphoretic. You get short of breath and you get to a point you just can't keep going. That transition right there, my patient's exhausted, their physiology can't keep going, that is the transition to decompensated shock. Now, if left unchecked, you'll end up with end organ dysfunction, and if that's left unchecked, you end up with death. But this idea that compensated shock is when my patient's physiologic reserve is overriding that physiologic stress, and then transitioning to decompensated shock at the point that my physiologic stress that's happening to my patient, in this case hemorrhagic shock, is overwhelming my patient's physiologic reserve. Now, I think that this is a particularly helpful way to approach hemorrhagic shock specifically. Why? Because this way of thinking about shock really underscores that shock is not about hypotension. 
Because one of our best ways to miss our golden hour in trauma is to have the belief that, oh, if my map is 66, my patient's not in shock. If it's 64, they're in shock to give a blood pressure cutoff. I don't think that's very helpful. I find it much more helpful to think about shock on a continuum where you have an inciting event, in this case, massive bleeding, that puts the patient under intense physiologic stress that eventually starts resulting in tissue hypoperfusion and end organ dysfunction. But keeping in mind that physiologic stress, that is a sympathetically activated state. And sympathetic activation, you know what that does to your blood pressure? First, it goes up. Think about it. When you're exercising, what happens to your blood pressure? It goes up. So a lot of these patients, they are not presenting hypotensive. We see this all the time, especially your young, healthy trauma patients. They're coming in tachycardic and often hypertensive because their endogenous catecholamines are going crazy. And not just because they're bleeding in shock, but they're also usually in pain and terrified because fair enough. So this is a sympathetically activated state. Think about it as such. When I am trying to assess how sick my patient is in this model, what are the markers I'm going to use? Well, as I said, there's no single magic thing that's going to tell you yes or no, but you can get a lot of information from some fairly basic things. So I look at my exam, my monitor, and my labs to help inform my thinking as to how sick my patient is. In terms of my exam, I think about my mental status, work of breathing, skin exam, cap refill, urine output. My monitor is going to tell me heart rate, blood pressure, and not just blood pressure, but pulse pressure, shock index, and then looking, does my SPO waveform look perfused? What's my pleth perfusion index? And finally, labs that tell me either about physiologic stress or end organ dysfunction. Now, I go through this approach to thinking about shock and assessing shock in a lot greater detail in the shock continuum lecture that you can find on the ICU EDU website. And so you can sort of think about it there a little bit more if you want to. But for the purposes of this lecture, I'm using all of these things to help answer the question of first, how sick is my patient who's in hemorrhagic shock? Now, the second piece here is I can have a really sick patient, but is there a site of active bleeding? Because if my patient is dying, but they're not actively bleeding, do I need massive transfusion? It's going to decrease my likelihood. So do I have a site that I think either has active bleeding or recently bled a lot? This one is actually not completely straightforward, but at least there's a simple way to think about it. You just think about what box might they be bleeding in, right? We have a chest x-ray. We have a fast. We have a pelvic x-ray. We look at their extremities. Not forgetting you could put a lot of blood in your thigh, but try and just go from up to down to be like, do I have a reason to believe that I might be bleeding a whole lot from one of these places? Again, not that simple, but kind of. So that is my mental model for how I like to approach making decisions about, do I initiate massive transfusion? Unfortunately, often the answer, at least my initial answer being, I don't know. Sometimes it's super clear cut. Sometimes I'm like, clearly this patient needs massive transfusion right now. But sometimes I end up in a place that I'm like, you know, I need more information. I need more time. I need to see where this is headed. So what I like to do in those situations is buy time. Because for me, just giving that patient two units of uncross-matched blood right off the bat solves a lot of problems. 
One, I don't feel like I'm harming the patient by delaying unnecessarily. I have that ticking clock in my head saying every minute-ish counts for delay if they are massively bleeding. But if I'm on the fence about like, mm, really? If I just get my blood refrigerator and a lot of EDs just have uncross-matched blood in the fridge, you can just give some to your patient, give them two units right off the bat, bolus it in, how do they respond? It buys me time to trend how the patient is doing, watch how they respond, and then make a decision without feel like I'm delaying their care unnecessarily, but also trying to hopefully save me from activating the blood bank massive transfusion protocol when it's not really necessary. Now, item number next, restoring their blood volume. Okay, so we pulled the massive transfusion trigger. Now let's talk about the hematologic components of managing these patients. And in a way, this is also very simple. The golden rule of massive transfusion, which is what comes out goes back in again. Functionally, what that means is one to one to one-ish is probably the right answer. My patient is bleeding out whole blood, basically put back in more or less all the stuff that comes out. Now, I say ish because I don't really think at this point it's terribly useful to be like, well, if it's like one to one and a half to 1.7 to a, if you try to get to one to one to one, I think that based on the current literature, that is probably reasonable ish. The most recent paper that I've seen that I think is useful on this topic just came out in 2022. Um, and this was a paper in Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery. And it was a big study looking at transfusion balance. Because we've sort of had all the studies that have gotten us to the concept of one-to-one-to-one, -to -one -to -one, probably the right idea. But this was a big retrospective multi-center study of trauma patients, 9,000 plus of them, requiring massive transfusion as per one of the usual definitions. And what they looked at was transfusion balance. In terms of the ratio of platelets to RBCs and FFP to RBCs, how close were you? What they found is that 21% of patients had unbalanced platelet transfusions. Only 12% of patients had unbalanced FFP transfusions. But the important finding was this. What they found was that a significant increase in 24 more hour mortality for unbalanced FFP with an odds ratio of 1.66, unbalanced platelets was significantly worse. Unbalanced platelets has an odds ratio for mortality of 2.48. And if both FFP and platelets were given in unbalanced ratio, odds ratio of 3.41 for 24-hour mortality. So I think this study confirms for me that at the moment, it is reasonable to target a one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one ratio. And I will often give platelets on the early side if I think I'm massively transfusing, knowing that it's the thing that we most commonly miss. Now, logistically, in order to do this, I like a whiteboard, either the whiteboard or like if you have glass doors, get a whiteboard marker. And in the same way that you'd have one of, you know, your nurses recording during a code, you have them record during a massive transfusion. And so they're just writing on the board, reds, FFP and platelets. And every time we give one, have the person in charge of the rapid transfuser yell it out so I can keep track. Now, this does multiple things for me. One, it helps me as the resuscitation leader to keep track of where I am and what's happening and how am I getting behind. But also, 
there's often a lot of people involved in these resuscitations. And so, you know, I need surgeons to be on board with what's happening and know what's going on. I then often have specialty consultants coming in. Maybe IR comes down, maybe GI comes down. But basically, anybody who needs to be involved in decision-making about this patient can immediately walk in the room and right there in front of them have a sense of what's happening. How is this resuscitation going? So one-to-one-to-one is the core of your strategy. What about your cherry on top things, your TXA and your cryo? So literature on TXA could be a whole hour-long lecture all by itself. I am not going to do that right now. Um, What I will just say about TXA is, when do I give TXA? Personally, I give TXA when I have a trauma patient who is sick, who is early. Won't give it past three hours. Earlier is better. So TXA, sick, early trauma patients. What about cryo? I think a lot of people are increasingly giving cryo sooner. I don't know evidence-wise if that's the right thing to do. We don't have clear evidence on that yet. I will give cryo sooner rather than later. One, in patients I truly believe are massively bleeding. And I'm like, okay, we're like one blood bucket in right now. This is clearly not going in a good direction. I'm just going to give the cryo. Or I'll do it in liver patients who often their fibrinogen is low in the first place. If you can get a TEG, a thromboelastography, or a Rotem, or if you can get a fibrinogen and it's less than 100 to 150, then give it for those reasons. But if I don't have any of that data, but I do have a liver patient or a patient who I'm like, this is really, really sick, this patient is like really seriously massively bleeding, that's often when I personally give cryo early. Evidence may change, we'll see. But what I do do for both cryo and TXA, I stick it on my board so that one, I know that if I'm not giving it, it's not because I forgot, I just decided not to, and two, so we can keep track. Now, another key principle of the golden rule of what comes out goes back in again is that when patients bleed, the blood is at body temperature, not at room temperature. Turns out body and room temperature are different. And one of my pet peeves is when we go running around for the blanket warmer, we stack our patient up with warm blankets, and then we give them cold blood. That is not getting you anywhere. I mean, yes, take off the patient's wet clothes, examine them, put on the warm blankets, do all those things, put on a bear hugger. I usually do that early. But if you're giving them cold blood, you're getting yourself precisely nowhere. Get your blood warmer as soon as you are calling for massive transfusion. Lastly, you can't put anything into your patient without appropriate vascular access. So the thing to remember about vascular access for massively bleeding patients is short and fat. That is what you want, short and fat. And this is why a triple lumen central line is completely useless to you. What you really want is lots of large bore peripheral IVs. You don't need a cordis necessarily. I mean, you can use one. That's fantastic. But if you have a whole bunch of large bore peripherals, 16s, 18s, 14s even, you are golden. Now, if you're going to put in a central line, a triple lumen is not helping you at all. It's long and skinny, not short and fat. That's not what you want. Um, A cordis is a reasonable thing to do. But a cordis has that bend in it, right, that slows down your blood. Um, I actually prefer a mat catheter that has these two big lumens and doesn't have that bend. I'll post a picture on the website of the kinds of catheters I'm talking about. But I find those a lot more reliable because they also have that like straight rather than accordion thing, that stupid accordion thing the cordis has that always gets messed up. I hate that thing. Um, so I'll post a picture of a mat catheter on uh, on the website so you guys can take a look. But 
If I have access to that, that's what I prefer. Otherwise, cordis maybe. Otherwise, lots of large bore peripheral IVs. Item number next, correcting metabolic derangements. So this is your metabolic piece of this equation. Main thing is calcium. Do not forget your calcium. Remember, calcium is doing two things for you. One, hypocalcemia can contribute to coagulopathy, but it can also contribute to vasoplegia. Hypocalcemia is not helping you. So I will usually give one gram of calcium chloride or two of calcium gluconate for every four-ish units of product. And I'll also usually start early. The minute I know I'm massively transfusing, I know I'm going to be giving more than four units of product, so I'm just going to give my calcium right off the bat, and I like to write it up there on my board so I'm not losing track, because it's absolutely happened to me before, where I have a patient, I'm massively transfusing, and I'm like, oh, I think we're catching up, patient's getting better, and then they're just persistently hypotensive, and I'm like, what's happening? And it turns out I completely forgot the calcium, now my patient's vasoplegic, the minute I give calcium, everything gets better. But calcium's not your only electrolyte that can become a problem, because hyperkalemia also can become a problem. While all those lovely bags of blood are just sitting there hanging out waiting for a massively bleeding patient to come in, the cells lice, a lot of the cells lice. What do lice cells do? They give off potassium. So when you are transfusing your patient, along with the blood you're transfusing, you're giving them a big potassium load. Now, this isn't a problem in a small volume transfusion, and usually as long as the kidneys are functioning reasonably well, the kidneys clear it. But like we talked about, when you are in one of these really bad hemorrhagic shock resuscitations, often the kidneys aren't functioning that well, and certainly not well enough to deal with that big potassium load the patient's getting. So hyperkalemia can become a problem. Now, hopefully you're pushing calcium already, but if you see your patient starting to get bradycardic or did all the weird things that happened to the EKG and you're looking at the monitor and you're like, why is my QRS all of a sudden looking really weird? You're probably hyperkalemic. So you're going to treat your hyperkalemia like you normally would. Um, just keeping in mind, if you're going to give your insulin, you really have to keep up with your sugar because your patient can also be getting hypoglycemic potentially. So you're going to treat your hyperkalemia. You're already giving calcium, bicarb, insulin, all the usual good stuff. Now, what about metabolic acidosis? So shock, massive bleeding, all of this is causing a worsening metabolic acidosis in your patient. I like to keep an eye on the base excess in trauma patients and in bleeding patients. I find it's a helpful number for giving me an index as this whole thing progresses as to whether or not I am behind or I'm sort of keeping up with their shock. I will sometimes give bicarb in these patients. And before everybody loses their mind, let me tell you why. Big picture, I think bicarb is one of those things. There are good reasons to give it and dumb reasons to give it. It all depends why you're giving it. And frequently, the reason for me that I'll give bicarb to a patient in any scenario is if I'm using it to break a vicious cycle. And acidosis is very much a part of the vicious cycle of hemorrhagic shock, both in terms of contributing to coagulopathy and to vasoplegia. So if I have a patient, especially when I think that, you know, they've been bleeding a long time and we are behind in the resuscitation, it's going to take me a while to catch up. I'll push some bicarb if I think I need to, to try and correct the acidosis, knowing that I have in no way fixed the underlying problem, but that's not what the bicarb's for. The bicarb is to try to help make sure that I'm not perpetuating this vicious cycle by allowing continuing acidosis. Now, 
If you're going to do that and you have an intubated patient, you got to keep in mind, you got to blow off the CO2. In fact, anytime you intubate these patients, I put them on a high minute ventilation because before they're intubated, they're self-regulating, right? They're usually very tachypnic. But once you intubate them, you got to regulate their respiratory status. And you just know, more likely than not, this patient's going to have a metabolic acidosis if they're really that sick that you're intubating them in hemorrhagic shock. So just put them on a high minute ventilation, high respiratory rate, reasonable thoughtful tidal volumes to blow off that CO2 to cry and correct their pH. Okay. Item number next is supporting their hemodynamics. So hemodynamics are such an integral piece of this, even aside from the hypovolemia, but this is also where iatrogenesis can get complicated. So pressors in hemorrhagic shock. I feel like when I use the words pressors and hemorrhagic shock in the same sentence, everybody loses their mind. And let's just be clear right up front about something, which is pressors do not fix bleeding. Say it one more time. Pressors do not fix bleeding. But I think at the same time, pressors and hemorrhagic shock are also probably not evil. It's all about how you use them. So one of the first studies that sort of we got all up in arms about and we were like, oh, maybe pressors and hemorrhagic shock are evil was this study that came out in BMC Emergency Medicine. And this looked at trauma patients, single specter, retrospective trial, 40 blunt trauma patients, so not very many, and patients got either norepi or dopamine. And what they found is that non-survivors were administered pressors significantly earlier after admission and at significantly higher doses. And they found that survivors got total blood transfusion amounts that were significantly higher. To me, what it sounds like was happening in this study is people were inappropriately using norepi or dopamine to bump up the pressures and to sort of support the pressure rather than transfuse is what concerns me. Also, I don't know why anybody would ever use dopamine for almost anything, certainly not now. So I'm not shocked given this study that they didn't see anything good happening, but there's some better data on pressors and hemorrhagic shock. So this paper came out in JAMA Surgery, and it specifically looked at vasopressin. And it was a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial, 100 trauma patients who were bleeding significantly. What they did is they gave them a little vasopressin bolus, and then they just had them on vasopressin at a fixed dose, as in not titratable, as in if your pressure is dropping, you can't just go up on the vaso to fix it. What did they find? They found that vasopressin administration was associated with significantly decreased blood product administration, like a liter, but no differences in mortality. So no increased mortality with the vaso. Next study on this. This was a study that came out British Journal of Anesthesia. And what they did is 200 patients out of a big database that they could propensity match on a one-to-one -one risk factor basis. And they just looked at norepi. They just looked at norepity use in these patients that were otherwise risk matched. And they found no difference for in-hospital mortality between patients who did and did not receive norepi. Last big study on this. This was from JAMA Open. This study 
was a retrospective observational multicenter trial of 2,000 plus patients, so the biggest one yet in blood trauma patients. They did a whole bunch of statistics to try and see if they could find any association in some form with norepi and mortality, and the answer was none of the five analytical strategies they use suggested any significantly a significant association between norepi administration and nor and hospital mortality. So, pressors and hemorrhagic shock. I think it depends how you use them. You know, if you're using them to mask hypotension and then don't give blood because rather than giving blood to treat their hypotension from their hemorrhage, you're just going up and up on your pressors, that's the wrong way to use pressors in hemorrhagic shock. That's not going to help you. But I do think that there are times that there's a right way to use pressors in hemorrhagic shock, mainly the you break it, you buy it moment, which is this. When patients come in in hemorrhagic shock, they're massively sympathetically activated. Their endogenous catecholamines are going berserk. So they have a lot of good tone. They have a lot of good vasoconstriction. That happens very nicely all the way up and until we do things like give them paralysis induction agents, intubate them and sedate them, or give them a whole bunch of pain meds because we need to reduce their ankle, right? The minute we start doing things that pulls out the rug of their endogenous catecholamines from under them... Well, we've now broken it. And so if we do that, to me, that's when we're allowed to use pressors to basically replace some of those endogenous catecholamines that we've just stolen away. So that's often when I'll use pressors. I'll use push-dose pressors, peri-intubation in these patients. If I have an intubated patient or a patient who's really needing a lot of pain medication, I'll use some little low-dose norepi. But the way I order it, the way I write for it, I don't write for a titratable drip because that runs the danger, especially if you get sidetracked, of somebody just going up and up and up on the presser dosing rather than resuscitating the patient. So I'll just write for like a fixed dose that they can titrate down, but they can't go up. So I'll be like, you can't go to more than maybe 0.05 of norepi. So that to me, push dose or low dose fixed is how I safely use pressors in hemorrhagic shock. Because the other thing is sometimes the other reason you need them is this this in-stage terminal event thing that happens. You'll notice that all the things that tend to lead to that are massive transfusion, hypervolemia, tissue edema, too much fluid volume overload. That is often what gets you into one of those rock hard place situations. And what I don't want to be doing is taking the vasoplegia that I see in my hemorrhagic shock patient that's caused by just general inflammation from shock and all the medications that I'm giving them and hypocalcemia and treat their vasoplegia with volume. That's not the right thing to do either. What I want to do is restore their vasculature to a normal state of vasoconstriction and then, then I give them the volume right? So you're ongoing resuscitation, right? You're just constantly giving these patients blood and volume. But if you're mindful about your vascular tone as you're doing it, just be thoughtful about the fact that depending on the situation, it may be okay to use a little bit of pressors so that you're not giving volume to compensate for vasoplegia. Now, how much volume? This is tricky, getting it just right. Over-transfusing, giving excessive amounts, is not helping these patients, right? Too much blood is not helping them, but failing to adequately resuscitate them with the amount of blood they need isn't either. This is a very tricky balance. Something that can help you to achieve this balance successfully is permissive hypotension, otherwise known as you can't have everything you want at the same time. Because while it would be ideal if 
I could have my patient with a blood pressure of 120 over 80, and I could have that blood pressure not popping off clots and causing them to bleed more, and I could not over-resuscitate and give them too much volume. That would be lovely. Often, you can't have all those things at the same time. So permissive hypotension, you know, MAP of less than 65, maybe MAP of 60, 55 to 60 even. And certainly I don't need a systolic of 120 because it looks pretty. And so letting them run a little bit low can really help you achieve that balance of not over-resuscitating them, while at the same time not sort of having too much blood pressure to pop off all that lovely clot that you're trying to form. This is particularly true with liver patients. They tend to run low in the first place. And what we know about liver patients is that over-resuscitation can really, really harm them. When this is not true, when does this not apply? Traumatic brain injury patients. Whenever your patient has a brain injury, priorities number one, two, and three, you've got to perfuse the brain. So permissive hypotension is not appropriate in those patients. All right. Last thing. Staying focused on the big picture. Because a lot is going on in these resuscitations. They are complicated. There's lots of teams involved. There's lots of moving pieces. And sometimes I think it's really, really easy to conflate where we're going and how we're going to get there. Do not forget, at the end of the day, the only thing that really matters here is you got to stop the bleeding. Because if you don't do that, all of this other lovely resuscitation you're doing doesn't matter. Now, sometimes things get complicated and you're in the middle of the resuscitation, and you're like, I don't know what's going on here. I, things aren't getting better. I'm feeling a little lost. What's happening? This is another time that I think having an organized clinical problem-solving approach is really important so that you can take a step back and be like, let's just reassess. Where are we? Because if they're getting better, great. If not, then this is the sort of series of questions I ask myself. One, do I think that I have active ongoing bleeding or do I think that I'm just really behind with the transfusion and I haven't caught up with how much they bled yet? Two, do I think I'm dealing with surgical bleeding and, you know, either a surgeon or a gastroenterologist, an interventional radiologist is going to have to go in and actually stop that bleeding? Or do I think that they're just so profoundly coagulopathic now from the fact that they've massively bled that really it's more medical bleeding that I just need to correct or often both? Next, do I think that we've hit one of those terminal trigger events? Do I think that my patient is either precipitously decompensating or just really not getting better because we are now experiencing trolley, taco, or abdominal compartment syndrome? And if so, I need to act on that immediately. And lastly, is there some additional shock etiology developing? You know, hemorrhagic shock follows Murphy's Law of Critical Care, which is the more things that have gone wrong, the more things that will go wrong. So, you know, everything is going wrong and now they're massively overloaded and their pulmonary hypertension's acting up now that I gave them so much blood. Or maybe I dropped a lung when I was putting in the subclavian and so now they have a tension pneumothorax. Or maybe there's another shock etiology altogether, like they're in neurogenic shock as well. So is there some additional shock etiology that's happening that's either developed or that I just missed in the first place? All right. That is hemorrhagic shock and massive transfusion. Unfortunately, it's not as simple as blood out, blood in, stop bleeding. We have to be a little bit more sophisticated about our approach, thinking about hematologic, metabolic, hemodynamic, and iatrogenic pathophysiology that all comes together into a complex but manageable way.
Approach to hemorrhagic shock, we are going to start by pulling that massive transfusion trigger, keeping in mind the balance between every minute counts, but blood is a precious resource. We are going to restore their blood volume. We're going to follow our golden rule, putting back in what comes out. We're going to correct their metabolic derangement. Calcium is a critically important one. We're going to support their hemodynamics, being thoughtful about how much volume we give, trying to get it just right, and being thoughtful about, you know, sometimes for the right reason, a little bit of pressors and hemorrhagic shock is probably not the evil thing. And finally, we're going to stay focused on the big picture and make sure we don't get so wrapped up in all the details we're trying to juggle running this resuscitation that we lose sight of the fact that ultimately what we really need to be doing is working backwards from how we're going to stop the bleeding. Thanks so much for listening.